Okay, welcome to the Addiction, the Mental Health and Addiction Podcast. This morning, my name is Andy Bernstein. I am your host and moderator, and we're happy you're here with us. Uh, we started the map back in 2019 to help have real discussions about addiction and mental health issues that are affecting one in five Americans. And joining us, as always, is my friend down in Florida, for now, Kristen Perry Long. Who are you, Chris? Hello. Hello. Uh, my name is Chris Perry Long. I'm a recovery coach and advocate. Um, I also work for AWARE uh, Treatment Program, which is an in-home addiction treatment where we, we meet our clients where they live. It's a 52-week program. Um, it's amazing. Love it. Uh, we, we pick up where, you know, the 30 to 45-day treatment programs uh, leave off. Mm-hmm. I want to know so- one thing, Chris, before we get to Willie. Every time we have a technical difficulty, you always look at me. It's always my fault. <laughs> Dude, you're captain. You are captain, like, geek squad over there. You always have a new mic, a different lap. Look, at he's got a laptop with a barcode on it. Where was your laptop? Yeah, Listen. where'd you steal that one from? Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> huh? And stole it. I, I might have stole it from who knows. Anyway, no. I think it says BU. I could be wrong. I don't know. Uh, there you go. <laughs> now, it was a happy repair, but I liked it. It feels uh, official. Um, all right, Willie, who are you? We avoided um, that answer. Did you hear that, Willie? I know. He definitely did. You know, it is a BU laptop. I can tell. Anyway, though. Uh, Willie Drink, Drinkwater. Uh, I'm an adjunct professor for UMass Boston in the Addiction Counseling Education Program. Uh, I have a private practice up in Beverly, which has been basically out of my house in Wakefield now. But uh, And uh, I'm a person in long-term re- recovery uh, 35 years. So. And? And? And, oh, in my in my previous life, I was with The Rock of Boston, WBCN, 102.4 FM. On your uh, FM dial. All right. Now- I'm sorry, 104.1. <laughs> I said, what a, I was saying WNEW in New York. Whoa. Well, you- NBC. All right. Um, I'm Andy Bernstein. I have been working in this world of um, media and addiction, mental health for about three years. I started, um, I kind of got exposed to it through some work I was doing around learning about young hockey players that were struggling with opioid addiction. And I felt like I could help make a difference through my background in media and, um, and cause marketing. So, uh, Three years later, here we go. We're still, still kicking along, crazy, and we still have hope. Always have hope. <laughs> There's That's always it. hope. All right. Well, let's talk about something that um, Willie, you know, and his. Uh, this is something of goodwill and cheer on Friday. No, I'm kidding. Um, let's talk about something that is the inevitable death, mm-hmm. and um, something personally. Yeah. I have a hard time with this discussing because I've been dealing with my own existential anxiety about death and mortality. And, and so, um, but it is inevitable. And I think you guys will find what we're about to talk about really helpful. Willie, I'm going to turn it over to you since this was your baby. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, you know, over the course of this, this whole COVID times and stuff, I mean, and there was an article which I gave to Andy and, uh, and it's posted online too, but, uh, people are experiencing uh, existential anxiety. Basically, you know, they've been cooped up for so long and, you know, the social interactions are limited at this point in time that people, people start thinking about their own mortality. And, uh, you know, it gets to a point where it can be overwhelming. It can be, uh, you know, almost afraid to move, almost a freeze thing where, where people are like, oh my God, how much time do I have left? And, you know, it's, it's not something that we do well in Western civilization, talking about death. Usually someone will pass away and we talk about it briefly and then it goes back into the closet again. So, you know, I think it's something that needs to be more openly discussed. So having said that, um, there are some healthy ways to accept death um, as best you can, I'm going to guess. I mean, it sounds easier said than done, but... You know, I think it's something that, again, we all have to face. So, um, guys, you want to, uh, Chris, you want to take this first one? Yeah. So, having just experienced death mm. um, with my dad, um, I've always tried to like take that high road. I I've always said, you know, and I warned my husband 
you know, um, I'm not going to handle it well because I have been very sheltered from death. Um, I just, I haven't lost a lot of people like directly in my bubble. Um, but what I have observed is, you know, um, when COVID started, um, it really became present. Like we're in for like some, some pretty heavy stuff when COVID kind of like is out and we're able to start socializing and start hanging out and talking about our experiences. I have a very close friend that um, they were like number 66 and 67, or they were in the first hundred cases in Massachusetts. And one person got it, the, the female got it and she was able to stay home and go through it. But the boyfriend um, had to go into the hospital and she said goodbye, but she didn't think it was goodbye. And right. she never got to see him or talk to him again. And I can't, I mean, it's, it's one thing to like lose somebody um, in a car accident, unexpected, right? That's a different kind of grief. There's another kind of grief, like what I just went through. Like I knew it, it was, it, the time was coming. Like my father was 90 years old. Um, as best as you prepare yourself, you prepare yourself. And, and when it happens, you've kind of already sort of accepted it, but you still go through that whole process. And then there's this whole new kind of death that we don't expect. Like you say goodbye to somebody, they're awake and you never speak to them again. And they're in the hospital where they're supposed to be being taken care of. And there was so much uncertainty and she never got to see him again because in the earlier, when COVID was just starting, when people were dying, they were like getting rid of the bodies because they had no idea how bad this was going to be. Um, and so there was no closure. Um, there's a very different closure when you have the opportunity to, to say goodbye to the person. When you could be yeah. with them and hold their hand and, you know. Right. And then instead of just, you know, um, going out and thinking they're going to go to the hospital and you'll see them again. So I think that like this world, we are going to hear a lot of stories, um, you know, that are going to really pull on our heartstrings and dealing with it. I don't think people have the, the moral compass to be able to cope with it. So I don't really know what's going to happen. I mean, there's a lot going on. I mean, they've got, I don't remember what it was that was just mentioned in the news, but somebody got arrested with some of the capital stuff yeah. that happened in the Capitol and that guy got arrested and he took his life. Like he yep. didn't, you know, like there's a lot of stuff that's coming down our road that. There's a lot going on with the healthcare workers now too. I was just reading the other day about them, the, the, the number of nurses that are quitting, you know, after being in an ICU through this COVID time, I mean, they just can't, they just can't take the amount of death that they, that they've seen and they're seeing, you know, it's right. just, it's just too much. It's overpowering, you know, the amount of death and, you know, holding holding someone's cell phone so they can say goodbye over over FaceTime or something. I mean, it's just horrendous. You know, I mean, healthcare workers really need a lot more support that have been dealing with this, you know, in the trenches. It's just, uh, you know, it's super, super tough. Let me ask a question um, as somebody who, uh, as you two guys work on the front lines of addiction and um, how are there ways like does the type of death affect the more period the morning period you know each person goes through the you know i mean you know elizabeth kubler ross was was the person that wrote you know on death and dying back in 1969 and she did the five stages of grief and loss and they're still applicable now but you know each each person goes through those stages you know i mean you know, they may not do them in order. They may they may bounce around the stages. There may be some that you know they they never even do. But I mean, you know, the 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 last one's the most important one, and that's the acceptance that your loved one has passed away. And that that doesn't come to everybody. You know, a lot of there are folks that don't get to a point of acceptance. My neighbor, my neighbor. It's been two years. Well, you think about you think about like the the ways people die. So we work in the field of substance use, right? That's what I'm trying and to. Think. And yeah. like just that, that, that house, just that house, right? Yeah. And so yeah. as a mom of two kids in recovery, mm. by the grace of God, 
in the back of my mind, I know that at any point that can change and an overdose can happen and they could die. Like I know that whether I accept it is a different thing. And having been in this for as long as I have and surrounded myself with people like the, the guests that we were speaking about earlier, right? We started out with this, this huge room full of people that had kids that were struggling, right? We went to, a group of us went to, to Maine. I think there was 24 or 25 of us that went to Maine and kids that were struggling and in re recovery were the minority. If we took that same group, this is four years later, if we took that same group, kids that have passed, are the majority now, not in recovery. So it's to go into a room and, and look at, you know, 25 people and all these people on the side of the room, all their kids are alive. Now to go back and sit in that room and more than half of those people's kids are gone. And I can't like, and there are people that have lost multiple kids. I, I can't, I can't, I, Chris, I can't imagine it. Um, I don't have kids. I can't imagine how gut-wrenching it would be. Um, what they're saying is actually um, in this article, uh, death is scary because it's surrounded by mystery. It's helpful not to put a time limit when you find yourself dealing with a loss. So I guess that's the takeaway on number one. Mm -hmm. um, moving on to number two, I'll take this one. Um, remember how the person impacted your life. Yeah. Um, and they're saying that, um, you know, I, I don't know what your thoughts are on this. I, Chris, you know, using you because you just actually, you know, obviously you've experienced loss recently. Um, what what are you doing to remember? So my dad was just somebody that, like, he was my buffer in life. You know what I mean? Like, he was my buffer. Um, until pretty much right before he, he passed. Um, he just was a funny guy and it's, it's weird. Um, you know, I lay awake at night and sometimes I don't want to close my eyes because I get sad. Let's just be real. And, and when I close my eyes, I've been, it's kind of like a surreal feeling um, I have gone back to memories that are from when I was really, really little, like detailed memories. And that's what I'm filling my heart with is like those good, funny, happy memories. So when I was like 11 years old, my father was like a wicked jokester. This is like a wrong joke. But when I was like 11 years old, my father, like he never hit me ever. But he decided on April Fool's Day, it would be funny to um, take me upstairs to my bedroom, take the belt out of his pants and tell me to hold on to the bedroom. Like I hadn't done anything, but he was like, gonna, whatever. And then it was like, as fast as he took the, his belt out of his pants, he said, April Fool's. Like, who does that? Right. And he thought that was funny, but it's a memory that like mm. stayed in my, it was an April Fool's joke. And I'm like, it was so wrong on so many levels. <laughs> like, Which was, I fully appreciate, yeah. I know, but it was just like, like I, I like sat up in that memory. I'm like, it's three o'clock in the morning and here's this memory that just, it was like, whatever. But those are the yeah. things, it makes you laugh now, right? And so yeah. you hold on to those good memories. You look at pictures, you look at, mm. like, I, I honestly can't, I can't remember anything bad about my dad. You know, I, I can't. So I think, I think there's cultural pieces too, because my mother was Irish Italian and you know, how they mourned on both sides there was quite different, different and stuff. The Irish side of my family, you, you, you might actually have the wake in the home and it was a party. It was a celebration, you know, I mean, and the Italian side of my family was different. You'd have, you'd have the wake. They might even pay someone to come into the wake and mourn, do the, you know, do, do the wailing, the whole, t no, I'm, no, no, I'm serious, Andy, you know, it was, you know, and my, and my grandmother dressed in black for two years, and it's like, at the graveside, you're trying to prevent her from jumping in on top of the coffin, and I mean, you know, it was just, yeah, it, it was quite, quite different, the Irish side was a party, and the Italian side, it was, it was really intense, it was, you know, you pay someone to come in and wail in the, uh, in the funeral home. My, it's interesting that you say that because isn't for like Jewish people, like true Jewish 
beliefs they're going to be in the ground before the sun goes down andy right, right? that and then also isn't there like a a pin or a hat or something that you wear and then after a year you flip Where, it and yeah you do a um unveiling yes yes okay. um but uh so what we do is um my uncle died a few years ago and we you have a funeral he died oh no it was better yet my dad died on a thursday but on thanksgiving day by that sunday we had a funeral all ready to go she had we arranged um she she had a rabbi she had everything in in three days and literally in three days and then mm -hmm. typically what happens is then you said shiva which is um something where it's about four four days where you go over to the person's house um the morning and um and you you have a rabbi there and you do a minion um and they do prayers nightly prayers and then they bring food in a lot of food people send trays Huns. That's Italian style too, is the exactly. Yeah. Food is a big part of the Jewish and Italian culture where mm -hmm. some other cultures do, you know, they drink um, or, you know, do other things. But for us, um, yeah, it's a very quick, it's a very quick experience. And um, the Shiva is really the, the morning, morning period. In answer to your question, yes, they wear, uh, wear a black. Um, I forgot the name of what it's called, but, uh, um, yeah, it's tough. It's tough, but really the Shiva is the morning period. Um, and I, I've gone to a funeral recently. Um, no, a family friend died. I saw it online. He was a huge sports fan, like ridiculous. And he had everybody wear a uniform and jerseys and hats to his funeral. That was what he requested and turned it into a real celebration of life. So, uh, so I guess every different different strokes for different folks. Yeah. Willie, you're gonna yeah, uh, have a funeral that that speaks to their personality. I mean, uh, de definitely. I mean, you know, I mean, my 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 sons already know what I want. You know, I want uh, you know rock and roll music playing at the wake. You know, preferably the Foo Fighters. You know, and stuff. <laughs> I mean, really. I mean, I want it. I want it to be a party, a celebration. I don't want anyone to you know to be looking sad. You know, it's. Uh, Oh, I, I actually I had a dream and I told my family and this is part and part of what I want too is when I when I when I I, I had this dream one night that um, that that I was looking down at my own wake I could see myself in the coffin and my family was surrounding you know surrounded around the coffin and um, and and all of a sudden the funeral director jumped out from behind a black curtain right and he yelled you're all going to Disney and they put on Mickey Mouse hats and everyone was celebrating. <laughs> And I actually have it set up You're now that when I no, I'm, I I actually have it set up now that when I pass away, there's a fund where I want the family to go to Disney. I love stuff. you. Have a good time, celebrate, man. Can I, I had a good luck. Can we broadcast from there? Sure, sure. Can, you know, can you get on that? Yeah, but I mean, you know, you know, you know, have a few that 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 speaks oh, to that. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, no. You're so like. What? You're an odd bird. Drink water. I mean, I woke up laughing, and you know, every every time I have that dream, I just wake up laughing. It's like you're all going to Disney, and they're dancing around up, the coffin. I wake up wondering if anybody's even going to come to my funeral. I don't oh. know. Right? Like you think about like remembering, like living your legacy, right? What is your legacy? What is my legacy? That's number four, Chris. I know. No, I know. Like so, yeah. you yeah. know, it's like. But I mean, if you're living your life to create a legacy, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Like you have to just mm. be your own person. But yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, if, if their legacy was being well, oh, kind and helping other people, that's not a bad legacy, you know. No. Right. If you, yeah. if you, because you know, in the Jewish culture, um, in the Jewish faith, it's it's, um, and I've learned this recently as I started to dig in more back to my Jewish roots, um, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. that you know, you want to leave the world a better place than you found it. Absolutely. That, that's, you know, so, 100%. um, so if, if, you know, in, in dealing with a lot of people who overdose, um, not me, but you guys, um, uh, you know, a lot of moms and stuff. I mean, we've interviewed countless who are trying to honor their kids through, through their, uh, found it. And you know what I realized? And it took me, uh, one of our guests, Mar you know, when we had Margo on Margo Montgomery, um, what I learned from that is, um, I always want to help like, Hey, let me help you with your sponsorships and stuff. I'm not doing it unless I'm asked. 
because that's their way of grieving. And they don't necessarily even, what I'm realizing, they don't even care. It's like a process for them. It's a healing process. It has nothing to do with the actual, you know, getting it off the ground. I don't think, you know, they need, they want outside help. I think they want it to be about the family is what I, what I've learned from that, from doing the, from doing this show. I, I volunteer, but I'm not going to push the issue anymore. So, um, okay. So that's number four. And then we got to get, we got to get to, uh, I know, we got to get moving. We got to get to our guests. Yes. 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 So you can read the article. It's on, um, Mike, can you put up the article again? There you go. It's on healthline. Hmm. I love that you just did that right on demand too, by the way. Um, Bob Seibel, the comedian, God rest his soul and stuff. I mean, you know, he used to do jokes about death and, and everything. I mean, it's a, it's a tough topic to, to try to joke about from a stage. But I remember him one, one night up on stage. He said, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, they just passed a law in Massachusetts that the Irish, when they die now, they can no longer be cre- cremated and stuff. And the audience is looking at him and he goes, well, yeah, because of all the alcohol they drank, they're such a fire hazard, you know, and it's a big Irish poo-poo platter, you know, and, uh, and stuff, so, but... Uh, on that note uh great article willie thanks for our poo-poo platter tara the welcome right. in welcome in tara we're gonna welcome her we don't have theme music for her i wish we had walk-up music um you know some kind of like intro but we don't have one um but let's welcome tara rivera she is a treatment advocate and recovery coach at Recovery Centers of America, she is a radio host and a fellow podcaster like us, as well as an adjunct professor. She is a person in long-term recovery herself for 23 years. Welcome, Tara, from the green room. Welcome in. And her car. There she is. Oh, she needs to put her mic on now. There we go. How's that? There we That's go. great. Awesome. <laughs> I said, thank you for letting me out of my time out. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God, huh? Um, We're a little long-winded. No, that's totally fine, Chris. I was listening to you talk about your dad, and I I recently lost my grandfather, and I thought, you know, you said that your death is not something that you're super familiar with, and um, I thought, what a blessing. Um, I lost my father when I was 11 in uh, 1989, and then to the disease, I lost my grandfather a year later um, to the disease. A few years after that, I lost my godfather to the disease. And then a few years after that, an uncle. Um, and it's just continued from there. Unfortunately, I've lost a lot of you know friends along the way. Um, my grandmother passed a few years ago on hospice. I was there holding her hand when she passed. I was holding my father's hand when he passed. So unfortunately for me, death is something that I'm very comfortable with. Um, And, you know, I think it's not really true for everyone. And, um, you know, it's a blessing and a curse. It's, it's just, it's my life. Right. And that's what, that's the, the hand that has been dealt to me. Um, and I'm grateful that through those experiences, I've been able to grow and help others through that experience. And I, I actually like to hear people like yourself that don't have the experience share about what it's like to experience it for the first time. Um, because it really gives me a fresh set of eyes and um, some compassion and patience, you know, when dealing with other people that may not have the extensive experience that I do with death. I think that, I, I think that like what, you know, what I've learned over the years in working in this field is, you know, these kids and I, and I, I know that like the whole age range is from, you know, 18 up. And so I categorize them as kids cause I'm old and whatever. But I think what's like kind of tried to make me understand is like people like you, right? You've lost a lot of people to this disease directly impacted in your life. And the message that, and whether it's a protective mechanism or, or if they've just grown numb. So like my kids, not even collaboratively, individually have lost more people in their life than I have in a lifetime. And they're, their coping mechanism is they've just kind of become numb. This is their normal. And I think that that's, um, I think that's scary. Like, I think that's, you know, that's scary. Very scary. And it is the norm. 
Um, but I do think same with the long lasting effects of COVID is we're going to see the long term results of this in another 10, 15 years, because I think that, you know, our body works in, in such a way that when we're experiencing, um, it, you know, trauma, right, we, we fight or we flight. And, and so I think so we're all kind of in this fight mode right now. Um, and we have been for, for so many years because of this epidemic that when we can actually take a moment and breathe mm. and that's when we're going to start to see the lasting effects and that's when you're going to start to see the emotions arise and people actually being able to deal with the loss because right now it's coming at us so fast and furious we don't have time to process it so Surprising. we're just in fight mode and we're just moving forward and as best we can Hey, hey, Tara, um, before we kind of dive in some of the things that you guys wanted to talk about, can you, do you feel comfortable telling a little bit about your personal journey? Oh, sure. Yeah, happy to. Um, I grew up in a home with both my parents in active addiction. Um, and like, as I said, I lost my father to the disease when I was 11. Um, shortly thereafter, my mom got sober and um, couldn't handle being a single mom at 36 with four kids and trying to get sober. Uh, so the old, the oldest, you know, went into foster care. So I was in the foster care system for a few years. Um, that's when my addiction began. So ironically enough, my mom got sober. Um, and that's when I started right 12 years old and living in this, you know, uh, new house with a new family, um, super traumatic. I have such a heart for kids that are in DCF custody. It, my heart breaks for them because I know the pain and uncomfortability and the abandonment that you feel when you're, you know, going through something like that. Um, so that really fueled, you know, the abandonment I felt, you know, from my father, you know, not being able to give up drugs, drugs and alcohol instead, you know, lost his life. Um, so I felt abandoned by him. I felt abandoned by my mother. Um, so I obviously turned to drugs and alcohol because that's what I saw everybody else do. That's what everybody else's coping mechanisms were. Um, so luckily I was in my first rehab by the age of 15. Um, I didn't obviously stay sober at that point, but um, it wasn't too much long after I was 19 years old. I was a high functioning alcoholic and addict. Uh, you know, I was in college. I was working full time. I had my own apartment, um, but I was broken and I was hurt and um, I was depressed and I was isolated and uh, nobody knew that, you know, from the outside, I looked like I had it all together. Normal college kid, nothing's wrong. Um, on the inside, I just felt like a shell of a person and I just couldn't do it anymore. I knew there was more to life. I knew from going to AA meetings with my mom as a kid um, that I had a problem. I was able to identify that very early on, luckily because of hearing what I heard in the rooms um, as she was getting sober. And I called her at 19 years old and I said, mom, I need help, I can't do this anymore. And she said, well, what do you mean? You know, she didn't even really realize that there was a problem because I, I hit it so well. And I told her, I just, you know, what I had been doing and I just don't want to do this anymore. And she said, well, I'm going to a meeting tonight. You know, why don't you come? So, you know, obviously being familiar with AA and NA because of her, I, I knew right where to go. So I went and met her there. Um, I remember my very first meeting, this is 1997 back, you know, we had a lot of old timers with a lot of sobriety back then. Her sponsor was very old school, very stern, very scary. And, um, you know, she said, Hey, Tara, how you doing? And I was like, well, you know, I'm okay. I'm just, I'm not, I don't know how I'm going to sleep tonight. Like that was my biggest concern. I hadn't slept substance free in, you know, a good five years at that point. And she said, well, it's a good thing. No one ever died from, you know, lack of sleep. And I was like, ah, <laughs> you're right. No one has ever died from lack of sleep. So, um, you know, I got the first night under my belt and I literally did what I was told to do. You know, I went to meetings, I didn't drink, I asked for help, I got a sponsor. Um, you know, I went to all kinds of conferences and back then they had a lot of AA dances, every AA dance they had, I went to. Um, and I just, AA was my life, you know, and shortly after, I would say probably about two or three years in, I did big book step study meetings and really focused on my step work. Um, which a lot of healing came from that. And, you know, the rest of the years has been um, kind of like a smorgasbord of, you know, recovery. Ladder. 
Yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> you know, I did the church-based thing. I did celebrate recovery. I did twelve steps. Like I've done a lot of different things. And you know, January this January was twenty-four years for me, um, and it's amazing. It's just what a journey and what a blessing to be able to help other people now begin that journey. It looks very different than it did in 1997. I was going to say, like, don't you see like, so not to say that it was any, it's never been any easier, but don't you think like today's kids, (laughs) today's people that are trying to get sober, don't you think that they're faced with so many more reasons to not get sober? Yeah, you know, I mean, at 19, there wasn't a lot of young people, you know, in AA at that time, it was challenging um, for me. But I think that now the, I mean, the social media is a huge thing, right? Our kids are really struggling with social anxiety, with depression, with a lot of trauma, Um, so I think that there's a lot more stacked against the, you know, the population now that's struggling. And I think that not that there's not a lot of resources, but back when I got sober, I mean, it was, like I said, you know, my mom's sponsor was pretty much a hard, a hard person. Old school, old school. Yeah, yeah. you know, you just, you sit down, you shut up and you take the cotton out of your ears, you put it in your mouth. you're yeah. here to be seen and not heard unless you have something good to say. And if you're a newcomer, you don't have anything good to say. You sit down and you listen, you know? So um, it was, it was hard. It wasn't like, um, like it is now, you know, with recovery coaches and like, it's okay, just one day at a time. And you know, that sort of thing. There wasn't a lot of like, um, enabling. For it. Gentleness. No. It's enabling. Come on, let's no. just be honest here. It's, it's prolonging the inevitable. Um, I believe in like full support and all that kind of stuff, but you know, you look at some of these old school, these long-term, and I think in hearing your story, I think some of what contributed to you seeking recovery was because of your past. Like you maybe didn't realize it at the time, but you didn't want to be your past and you determined and, you know, so you were lucky. And I see now, like, I mean, I, 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 I truly believe opiates and alcohol are two different. They two, are obviously. Why? And I think like in what I've learned over the years and, and watched over the years, um, the grips that it has on people and our lack of, of, I not necessarily our lack of identify, identifying the mental health side of it, but it's identifying and working on the mental health side of it. I feel like our mental health side of, of people's addiction is what holds them captive. So we get the addiction part under control. We we teach them all that we need to teach them. But if we don't, ident- we've always talked about this. If we don't identify the mental health side of it and really truly address it and not just prescribe a pill to yeah, take I a mean, bit of depression and anxiety, we yeah, deal and that's with why I got, the problem. Wait, wait, it's never gonna go away. Way, way back when I began in the field, I did my first three years in a, in a detox, you know, at, at Caspar and stuff. And while I was there, I was always fascinated by patients that never slept, patients that never get out of bed and patients that were talking to people that were not there. So I'm going, seems to be a little bit more to this addiction than just, you know, just don't drink or drug. And then I did about a 15 year stint of the inpatient locked door psych addiction. It was like, Oh, okay. And again, you know, the, the thing I always talk about, Chris and Tara too, I mean, you show me someone that's been in the detox 10 times, 15 times, and I'll show you someone that's having a mental health piece that's not getting addressed. And the big three I always find are trauma, grief, and abandonment. It all goes back to family of origin more often than not, you know? Right. Yep, absolutely. And that it isn't addressed. And I think, you know, part of the problem is you know, we focus on removing the substances. Uh, removing the substances is fairly easy compared to actually learning how to deal with life on life's terms without mm-hmm. the substances you know right. we don't know how to cope and deal with the things that are handed to us these days and if we don't give people some skills and the support that they need to do that mm-hmm. i mean how do we expect them to be successful that's right. a great segue because you talk about um you do educational podcasts I do. So talk, um, talk to us about that. What, what, how, how did that start? I am, um, it's ironic because if you knew me, you know, years ago, you would have said never would I be doing something like that. And I think that, you know, my podcasts are recorded. They're not on video. So they're certainly a lot easier. Um, but I am a 
really big proponent of education, right? Like we talk about breaking the stigma. I started working in the field about five years ago. And prior to me working in the field, I worked in the healthcare industry and I was at a hospital for about five years and not, not any one of my coworkers knew that I was in recovery. I grew up in that era where things were anonymous. You know, I didn't know my fellow AA people's last names. Um, and as I was working in the fields, you know, five years, I, I was, I was well, probably just about 20 years sober and um, I was fearful. I didn't want to share that I was in recovery. And I thought, well, why am I fearful as something I should be proud of? And I'm contributing to the stigma of addiction by not sharing my story with people. Mm -hmm. um, so I started to slowly, um, comfortably share my story individually with people. And what I found was that they were encouraged and that they, it gave them faith and it gave them hope. And so I kind of began from there. And then I just started educating myself because I'm a, a life learner. Um, mm -hmm. And as I began to learn about the disease of addiction and the physiology of addiction and the role that genetics plays and the role that trauma plays, I thought, wow, like mind blown. People need to know this information. If you know this information, can you then continue to stigmatize our addicted population when you look at them as a child that's been hurt, abused, or neglected, and you see them now with someone maybe homeless has nothing struggling person. So that's where I think would be high information because people that were in recovery didn't know about genetics and trauma and the physiology of addiction. Um, that was kind of like the tool that I used to try to get the information out there. Gotcha. Um, I think we're having some technical difficulties. Can you guys hear okay? Yeah, no, it's I uh, think breaking can hear up you. a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Now she's okay. moving. She was frozen. Okay. So, you, you froze a little bit, but you're back. So, so Tara, tell me, we've, we've had, this is a very debatable question, and we've talked about this before, but I'd like your point of view. When a facility says it's a dual diagnosis, what exactly is a definition um, of a dual diagnosis in, in your words? Yep. So, and I am not a clinician. I'll just start by saying that. So this is coming from a person in long-term recovery, not a clinician or anybody with any type of, you know, um, skill set, right? So um, a dual diagnosis is, it's a very tough thing in my opinion. And I think that, you know, the statistics will show the majority of those that struggle with substance use disorder also have some type of a mental health condition, right? So whether it's depression, anxiety, um, those types of things. Now, when you're talking about going into a treatment facility such as RCA or any other treatment facility, that's a primary substance use disorder facility. We do treat dual diagnosis, but the folks that are really struggling with the mental health piece that maybe have had recent suicidal ideations or auditory hallucinations, those folks need a primary psych facility so they can get stabilized with, you know, any type of psych psychiatric medications and get their symptoms under control before they then can work on their substance use disorder. So most facilities such as RCA in Massachusetts, we're like a 3.7, right? So um, we can take people that, you know, are struggling with depression or struggling with anxiety. That's pretty common. I think that's probably 90 plus percent of our population right now. Um, but if it's someone that's really, really struggling with um, their mental health, they really need to kind of get that, get inpatient treatment or outpatient treatment, get that treated and under control before they really can start focusing on um, their substance use disorder. Is that, does that make sense? Yep. Chris, really? you wanted to talk to Tara about um, colleges. Um, so I'm going to let you guys talk about that because that was one of the things that you wanted to talk about with Tara today so yeah so you had so, so the reason that like it clicked I was like oh she'd be a really good good guest for us is um like the colleges and talking about and educating families about when your loved one goes to college so yeah you want to speak a little bit about that I do. So I actually, what, you know, kind of prompted this, I had put a post on Facebook looking for, um, you know, someone with, I guess I really probably didn't word it well when I posted on Facebook, but what I was looking for is someone um, 
with ex lived experience um, that could maybe come and speak about what they what their college life was like. I think that a lot of parents, you know, worry when they send their kids up to college. I think some parents think, well, it's college. They're going to experiment. They're going to party. They're going to do that. There's some level of acceptance there. Um, but but I mean, I think a lot of I knew before I even went to college, I had a problem, right? Most of most, the age of first use right now is 12 or 13 years old. So by the time someone gets to college, I tend to think very little of it is experimentational. Um, and I think, I think it's a really good opportunity to kind of maybe nip things in the bud. And so I thought it would be really helpful to start having those conversations. So parents of kids in college can begin to really understand signs and symptoms um, so that they can maybe pull their kid out of trouble before it gets too late. I think that's a great thing because you always say that, you know, people go to college and then they start, you know, uh, oh, they started drinking when they were in college. But to your point, you're saying they were drinking before. Prior. I was. I can tell you that right now. And mm. and I went to college and it was like, <clears throat> you know, and then it was like you get yourself, you think it's okay, right? Like it's it's part of the college experience. Yeah, and you take well, that overall, person. Overall, drinking is down on campuses. Is it overall? It is down on 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 well, campuses. But, but, but illicit those drugs do, is not. Those those that do drink though, they tend to be they tend to be the heavy hitters. They tend to be the one. You know, those are the ones that you're reading about in the paper where there was an you know alcohol poisoning at one of the major universities because they drink they drink till they black out and they're trying to get it done before the RAs are making the rounds again. You know, I, so. <laughs> I remember a quick story. I remember, so I grew up in Maryland, um, you know, not around drinkers at all. I remember going to college and the guys from New Jersey were always the real tough guys, right? They were all, I remember they put a bottle of wild turkey on the table and I was drinking wild turkey and I got so sick, got so sick. I'm like, who? I, I couldn't believe that people drank like that, like whiskey and things like that. And I was, I was naive, but I think, um, you know, it's a very prevalent thing. And, I, and what I'm finding is, because I worked at Boston University, that they set up a lot of, I think we lost Tara. Oh, no. She was fr frozen for, for a moment there, but. You had a but anyway, uh, at BU, I know that they set up, hopefully you still rejoin us, but at BU, can you they actually- We can kind of hear you. We can kind of hear you. We can see you. Mm. Nope, can't hear you. But anyway, keep going. Yeah. Oh, I was gonna say that I know some colleges right now are setting up, pro they have some programs set up specifically like Boston College has a- Sober they, dorm. Yeah, doesn't Carlo, Bill Carlo, isn't he involved with that? He used to do, yeah. I mean, he used to do the drug and alcohol pieces for for BC. I'm not sure if he, you know, where he is at the moment with that and stuff. But but there's BC a has a sober dorm. There's a lot of colleges. Are there that now? Have sober, sober dorms now? Housing. Sober yeah. housing now? Yep, they have. Good. The I mean, the tough thing about your freshman year too is that you know a predisposition for something is not a, a predetermination, but. I mean, I, I've seen it over the years where, but I worked the inpatient scene where, you know, 18 years old, someone goes off to college, they've got all those stress to get good, good grades, you know, keep their parents happy, you know, get good grades for themselves. And if there's a predisposition for mental health, bipolar disorder, schizoaffective, it could come flying out during that first or second semester freshman, freshman year. So. I remember um, I was working with... Um another friend who's also in the field and she works mm. she was working in um like an adolescent treatment program yeah. and they said that like the highest rate of mm -hmm. of applicants are like the freshmen mostly yeah. females because the mental health kicks in i mean if you think about it they're going through all those hormonal changes anyway and then you throw drugs and alcohol on top of it and it's like yeah. a, it's just a recipe for disaster um yeah. Yeah. You know, I talking, you know, Andy, thinking about what you guys were doing. We used to, when I was in college, 
um, there would be grain alcohol parties. Oh, yeah, sure. somebody that they with Kool Aid yeah. and yeah. alcohol. They call it an yeah, yeah, and you'd put a garbage bag in the trash can, yeah. and by the end of by the end of the night, the alcohol would have eaten through the plastic. It was oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like I just remember like drinking it, and you like it's sitting. I just remember one time drinking it, and I was yeah. sitting on a couch, and you know, red solo cup, and yeah. drinking and drinking and drinking, and when I got up. I was gone. Like yeah. when I was sitting, I, I was came fine. up here. I came up here in '74 to go to Merrimack, and that's the year that they dropped the drinking age to 18. It's like must have known I was coming. Old? You know, yeah, yes, I'm that old. <laughs> I'm 56, but I'm dyslexic. Think about it. Okay, yeah, Andy, what? Oh no, I think Tara. Tara's. We see her. Tara back? Yeah, I, I can see Tara. She looks frozen now. Tara, can Thanks, you can you talk? Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, yes. I can hear you. Yeah. I can. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah. Can you yeah. hear us? Um, I, I wasn't. Gonna, I wasn't going to make any comments about when you were in college, Willie, at all. I wasn't yeah. going to say yeah. anything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 65, going on 12, and I and I'm totally open to that. So you know, Tara. So um, so how did this come? So uh, mm. what are you? <laughs> is this something you know do, with your work at Artsy? Uh, a, are you trying to um, you know, develop more? programs within that um or is that totally a separate deal it, it is part of what i do at rca um we actually do a lot of free online ceus at rca so we're really big on education um which is you know exciting for me because i absolutely love to teach um so we do do a lot of that oh she's gone again I know. She's I've like, actually participated in some of those things. They they have some really. Um, it's on their website. Like cool. they have, have all. Check kinds, it out. Yeah, they have all kinds of. I mean, I don't have any need for CEUs because I don't have any letters after my name. Education certificates. Is that correct? <clears throat> yeah, but if you're like a clinician and you're and you need CEUs to make. Yeah, like. Yeah, LMHCs, LICSWs, LADCs. We need to get. I mean, I need to get forty every two years. Of right. continuing education units. What makes our RCA? Because this is what I wanted to ask for Tara. So one of you guys can do be a proxy uh, for her until she comes back. But what makes you know in the industry? Because you both work in in it um, again on the front lines. What there's so many different choices of where you could go for treatment, where you could go for help, who you could go for for information. How do you actually narrow it down to make sure I'm going where my family is? or my loved one is going to the right person? What makes each one different? Can you speak to? Um, so, so in regards to RCA, I, I personally like RCA um, for a couple of reasons. Um, they have the ability to provide uh, more than just detox. So the CSS, they're big enough that they have the ability to provide, you know, um, 30 days. Um, and we know that the longer time you're in an environment that is safe um, and you're getting groups and you're getting good food and you're getting um, some, they have like, they have gyms and they have, in their two different locations, they have different, little bit of different um, extra things that, that are offered. They have a first responders class uh, or track. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I have a client that I have worked with for many years now, well, a couple of years now, and a lot of trauma. And like we had said, we had gotten the addiction part of it under under wraps, like that was fine. But the depression was always taking that person out. And actually RCA was able to provide um, this person with some meds to be able to, for us to identify that it was his depression and anxiety that was taking him out and recognize that. <clears throat> where it went from there, you know, uh, is entirely up to the client, but it, it was enough that they took that time. They have that longevity to keep somebody for 30, 45 days yeah. um, in an environment to clear their minds, to give them that opportunity. Um, a lot of programs are starting to be able to have that ability. Um, it's really up to the client. Um, you just want to be able to provide, you want to be able to provide what their needs are in the moment. How, but, but how do you, okay, so if you go on the internet, right, so you go and you, you search, 
you're going to get opinions from people and you may get somebody, and this is with anything, this is buying a video camera. You're going to get, everybody's got an opinion. And I'm wondering as, as somebody who, you know, um, you know, as a, as an average person, if I go out and I look and I see, oh, okay, they said this, this topic was, or, you know, that they didn't do this right or they did this right, or they give low stars on it, like Yelp. You know, well, I, think, I think that's like, like building up your resources over, over the years too. And people that you meet along the way. I mean, I know, I know that I have my, my own favorite places and stuff for referral. So, I mean, what do you, you know, look it, for? And then Tara's back. So we'll hear from her, but what do you look for, Willie? Yeah. I mean, most of my, my clients that I have, you know, you know, I, I'm sort of the bipolar pipe piper, you know, in the, in the uh, addiction mental health field. So, you know, I mean, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really, the clients that I take on, it's addiction with co-occurring. I mean, there isn't a doubt about it. Some of it's personality disorders. Most of it are affective disorders, though, mm-hmm. you know, major depression, bipolar disorder, schizoaffective. So, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I, I look for, you know, a program where there's going to be a psychiatrist that's going to be meeting with them every single day. And, you know, like one, one of my favorite spots, you know, uh, you know, the psychiatrist on the admission sits with the client for an hour and a half to two hours. I mean, so... You know, it's it's a little bit different. You know, I mean, again, where's that, dep- where that, Willie? You can say that's it. That's McLean's at Nawkeg. Nawkeg at uh, McLean's. I mean, I yeah. I do a lot of referral, but with Proctor One and Nawkeg. I mean, those are two of my my big ones. I get referrals from psychiatrists that I know from um, Emma, MGB now, Mass Massachusetts General Brigham and stuff. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's I, I work with a lot of you know hardcore affective so you need disorders. Tara. So somebody like Tara, I'm going to tee it up for you right now, Tara. Mm-hmm. So somebody like Tara, yeah. back, um, you know, the onus on, is on you, obviously, when you're working with somebody like Willie or other people in the field. What, um, you know, if I, how do you position RCA, um, not to put you on the spot, but what, you know, as somebody who's in long-term recovery yourself, as someone who's been through the mill, how do you what do you say about RCA that is different than some of the other centers out there? What's your kind of take on this? Well, you know, I, I usually, you know, it's not, it's not just RCA, right? Like I ask somebody, you know, what their insurance is, have they been to treatment before? What's their, you know, primary substance use? Um, I, I ask them like, you know, preliminary questions for me to really kind of understand who I'm working with before I even make a recommendation. Mm-hmm. If it's an insurance that we can take at RCA, um, you know, then obviously I would talk about, you know, RCA being an option. Um, I, I love RCA. I've been there for four and a half years. I haven't um, worked anywhere else. That's just pretty much been where I've worked since I've been in the field. Um, but it is not for everybody, right? So, I mean, Chris did talk about our first responder program. We also have an evolutions program. So those folks that are 50 and over, um, they have their own track that they can go into because we obviously find that our older population that may be primarily alcohol don't necessarily understand or communicate well or can relate to the 22-year-old with an opioid use disorder, right? Mm-hmm. So we also have an LGBTQ track. Um, so there's several different tracks within our program that we can be able to customize the treatment that we provide for people. Um, so obviously there's certain, there's, there's pluses and there's lots that we do offer, but if, if it's not a right fit for somebody, I try to make sure I'm pretty well versed in what other programs offer as well as what they take for insurance. So if someone calls me and I either can't take their insurance or maybe I don't have a bed available or maybe RCA is not the right fit, mm-hmm. I can make a re- recommendation based off of my conversation you know, where I think that person would best fit. Okay. So how do you, if, if and I just, um, again, I'm just throwing questions out because I'm curious, but how do you, how do you, if somebody says, listen, uh, if you're talking to a hospital, you know, uh, an inpatient and you're talking and you're saying, um, you know, when you're trying to make a presentation or, or talk about RCA, um, how do you handle an objection if somebody says like, you know what? I don't like you guys. I read stuff on the internet because I'm I'm fascinated about how you actually make this decision and who do you go to to get that information? So 
How and one more thing, Andy, is working for a company, as I've always said, that allows you to make those decisions. And if it's not a good fit, refer mm. it out. Like, mm. come on, we all know that it's a business. And at the end of the day, it's the dollar sign. Like that's, yeah. right? Yeah. So how does RCA allow you to um, be able to reassure people that, you're, that it is the right fit? Yeah. So, you know, and that's one of the things that I love about working at RCA. I came from a nonprofit world. When I first started working at RCA, we were all out of network. Um, then we started, you know, gaining contracts, of course. So now we're in network with most providers for a very long time. We didn't take mass health. You know, that really was sad for me coming from a nonprofit world. That's my background. And those are, that's, those are my people. That's who I served um, for many years. So um, RCA has always been very generous in allowing me to work with everybody that calls me. I spend the same amount of time with somebody that has Blue Cross Blue Shield, that has Mass Health, that has no insurance. You know, nobody is treated any differently when they call me. And if I if I wasn't able to do that, I don't know that I would have been able to stay at RCA as long as I have. Right. So RCA is very committed to. Um, helping anybody and everybody, even if we are not the right fit or we may not take your insurance. So, you know, not every facility works that way. There's a lot of very unfavorable, um, you know, articles out there. You know, there's been, you know, there was a recent NPR article that was done about, you know, treatment centers, for-profit treatment centers, and really only care about the bottom line. And, you know, I, I try not to take that stuff personally because they are lumping all of us in together, which is unfair. Um, you know, but since COVID, I can personally tell you that, you know, our CEO has been in the building more, more, more than she's been in our home, right? Um, everybody is all hands on deck. And, um, you know, they haven't left anybody untreated. Um, you know, through COVID, it's been a really challenging time. You know, Willie talked about like our healthcare workers, right? Our people at RCA are those, they're healthcare workers. They're in that building every single day, taking care of their patients, putting their own selves at risk. And we know this is a high risk population, right? We're taking in people that are actively drinking and doing drugs and probably not really taking the safety precautions that they need to be taking, right? From the so, streets, right? Coming, yeah, from the, you know, coming from the tent down in Boston, that is, you know, yeah. There's yeah. a lot to be said for that. And so um, I do get defensive, but in a very um, pleasant way as possible mm -hmm. in a polite way as possible because there are some treatment centers out there that I would not send my worst enemy to. So, I mean, it is true. There are treatment centers out there that you do want to avoid, but I can certainly reassure you that RCA is not one of them. So I work. So I, I will share my experience that I worked one for two days and I walked out <laughs> and I literally walked out because I was new to the, new to this. I'm sitting in there the way they're approaching their business. And you can actually know that they've actually had struggles um but while i was sitting there um and I, I was really excited about it it was a new thing i have i have my own company i was like i'm gonna go to work for these people it sounds like i get to call i kind of create my own job it was really cool um i liked the person i'd be working for i thought they were great and but the, but her presentation and the way she came off did not vibe with how they were on the corporate level it really turned me off because if I can't believe in it, here's where I'm going with this. If I can't believe in it, then I can't uh, recommend it or, yeah. or present it. So I know Chris is a no, um, you know, she doesn't pull any punches. And she's a straight shooter. So the fact that, you know, she you wanted to have you on the show. I know for a fact that you guys are legit. If Chris, recommend to you because she wouldn't recommend or talk about anybody that wasn't right fair no i'm not gonna help i'm not gonna help promote somebody that i won't put somebody in like i i have to believe in who i you know my mantra is i've put my foot in the door i'm not yeah, trying yeah i mean yeah i mean i had a call from 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 a from a, a buddy from college asked me about a program in fairfield county Connecticut and stuff. And they said, have you ever heard of this program? And I said, you know, no, no, but I'll look them up. And, uh, you know, the long story short is, you know, there was 
it was it was basically uh, it, it was basically the treatment was was just twelve step. They were they were selling the twelve steps as treatment. Well, it's not treatment; it's a community support. What else are, are you offering? You know, and recovery coaches absolutely have their places, but at this facility, that's 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 the only thing they had was recovery coaches, and they were charging like twenty five hundred dollars a week. And you know, they had uh, you know the uh, the the main the the main thing there was Matt was was Suboxone, and uh, you know, long story short, I look up the two owners and their former. They're former sales reps with Reckitt Benzler, which just yeah. happens to be the manufacturer of Suboxone. So, so here you have a program and stuff that, you know, there's they're selling 12 step, it's Suboxone based and they're charging $2,500 a week. You know, that would not be a place that I would oh refer somebody to. That's like know? a nightmare because how many kids do we have that go to these traditional 12 step meetings, right? Mm -hmm. And you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing really good. And then like, you know, oh, but I'm on Suboxone. And then they get there, they look, yeah. they're like, wait, you're on, then you're not clean. Like, oh, oh yeah. And before we go for, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not against 12 step by any stretch of the imagination. No. I just want to put that out no. there. But, it, but it's not treatment. It's a community support, you know, it's, and you shouldn't be tool. charging people for it. You know? It's a tool. Right, right. right. I have uh, more questions for you. Let me add them. Let me add them, Willie. Yeah. Um, I have two questions, um, and I'll throw this out to all three of you. Oh, we lost Tara again. No, nope, here she is. He's yeah. like hi playing hide and seek with us right now. <laughs> That's because you put me in time out. That's what you said. Yeah, we yeah we kept you in time out for too long. That's on us. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Agree. Agree. To all three of you, these are my final two questions for all three of you. Um, how important? And I don't ever hear anybody talk about this. How? And I don't know if you guys do it. But I think you should. This is my opinion. Financial literacy. How important is financial literacy to recovery? In the sense that a lot of times money is probably in coping skills when you're back out of treatment. Is that, I mean, do you guys think that there is a factor on any level or job, getting a job? You know, uh, you know, because like. Yeah, it's looking at the whole picture, the whole gestalt. The whole gestalt. Up, right yeah. like, how do you is that something that is factored in because i think it should be um because, absolutely yeah yeah i mean you're talking social determinants of health right so it's not just mm. you know it's not just substance use it's not just mental health it's you know learning how to you know handle a job learning how to handle your checkbook learning how to be responsible mm. and get to your yeah. doctor's appointments and go to the dentist and you know it's all the of whole those picture things. Yeah. 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 That's that's where aware is like amazing. Like that's we we pick up where RCA moves off. Like when that client yeah. has completed those 30, 45, maybe 60 days, depending upon, and they go back and we expect people to like, okay, pick up where you left off. Life is normal now. It's I spend time with my clients e even about how to use how to use your state representatives, you know, if you have issues going on. I mean, you know, I mean it's about the whole picture. Yeah. learning how to because you say oh okay well you're you're sober okay great my problems are still here and now i have way no ways to cope you know like how am i how am i dealing with these right i mean you walk out of uh, you walk out of a treatment center right and you feel so good and you feel so alive and you have a handful of business cards right and you go home and the significant other has been home for 30 to 45 days with the kids, with the flu, with the bills, with everything else. And now it's like those, those business cards of those appointments that are with people that are going to help you maintain how you feel right now, they go in the drawer and you're faced with all of that life. And that's what's wrong with our system is that we don't recognize, we don't, you know, if somebody has cancer, right, and they go in and they have surgery and they have to have chemo, we allow for that recovery time before they are put back into the universe, per se, right? right, right. Like before you are faced with all of those things. Yes, you still have bills, you still have sick kids, but there's a different understanding and a different compassion. When you suffer from substance use, if you walk back and you're smiled and you've put those 15 pounds that you've lost off and you look on the outside fine, you're expected to be fine on the inside too. And it's, it's just not, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Yeah. Um, and then my last question for, well, 
how do you deal with how does this help your sobriety in your line of work does it help keep you no what i do for work is not my recovery i'm talking to tara oh i'm sorry <laughs> tara well, you can you know, see i'm really, out of it though in Willie's really defense you didn't say hey tara you know yeah, really, just, come on, Andy. thank you tara for, for all of us so <laughs> um you know i yeah i mean i would probably second what willie said you know my recovery isn't you know what i do for work um for me my recovery is my self-care um but i would i would be lying if i said that you know seeing people in the conditions that i'm seeing them in you know when a relapse occurs or when they're coming into treatment for the first time is certainly a remember when for me and it just it just reminds me that that is not for me anymore okay um and then my final question to you is how can people get in touch with you if they want to a listen to your your podcast um b if they want to reach out um and yeah how do yeah. they do that? so um i put my personal my work cell phone out there for everybody on my facebook all the time i like to be very accessible for people when they have questions or they need help um so my cell phone number is 978-870-7734 and my podcasts are housed on the rca website so if you go to recoverycentersofamerica.com backslash podcast you'll see all three of my podcasts there and i'm working on a fourth one right now nice cool. okay cool. well check it, check it out i'm gonna check it out you were a late addition uh, to the lineup last night so i need to check out your uh your podcast but thank you so much for coming on willie and chris any closing thoughts tara yes we have to have her back yeah for <laughs> sure Absolutely. we got Absolutely. so many deep dives we need to do that's yeah, it i love that yeah, yeah. And even, um, yeah, because we had technical difficulties, but that's okay. It's a team effort and we're going to, we'll, we'll power through. So thank you. And thank you to Mike Weber. That's our show for the week. I appreciate you coming on, Chris, Willie, Mike. Thanks guys. Have a great, thanks for coming on, Tara. Have a great thank week. You. We'll see you next week on. The map. The map. The map. Where's our music? Gotta have it.